And we never get a bottom in the stock market until central banks have been cutting rates for some time already. So this idea or hope that we could have seen the bottom, you know, in 2022 when they were only uh, increasing interest rates at that time would be extremely unusual and anomaly historically. And um, what you typically will see is that the unemployment rate will continue to rise even after the economy is bottomed out. So that's why it's really hard on household sector who comes into it with low savings and too much debt. And we've really seen that in spades. And let's not forget, Adam, that you had a very relatively mild recession the last time the tech bubble burst in 2000. It wasn't really until 2001 that you had some sort of contraction, but the stock market still fell more than 50%. And I'm talking the mm -hmm. broad market. And of course, the NASDAQ lost 80% and took 15 years to recover its prior cycle. And we are really back at that kind of extreme valuation when it comes to love and adoration for the tech sector. We've really gone overboard again here. The AI uh, phenomenon, you know, just belief that somehow that was going to change the world overnight. That's all fed into it. Um, and of course, we still have all the crazy, you know, uh, bullish sentiment, speculative fever. We still have, you know, a sentiment at all time highs and lots of people doing how do I play this daily sort of mentality. And I, all that tells me that we haven't yet seen the bottom here. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. According to the latest government data, the U.S. economy is growing faster than expected. Inflation's largely under control jobs are plentiful, and consumer households remain resilient. From this perspective, times are good. But talk to real consumers and you hear a very different story. The cost of living is at crippling levels, forcing consumers to stop saving and put an increasing amount of their living costs on revolving credit, which currently charges record high APRs. Consumers looking for new jobs report the market is not nearly as hungry for workers as the government numbers suggest. Instead, hiring freezes and layoffs are prevalent. From their view, times are tight and getting tougher. Well, which story is the more accurate one? And should we expect things to get better or worse from here? For answers, we're fortunate to turn to Danielle Park, President and Portfolio Manager for Venable Park Investment Council, Inc., where she manages millions for some of Canada's wealthiest families. She's also proprietor of the daily financial website, jugglingdynamite.com. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Adam. All right. Well, look, Danielle, I had the pleasure of meeting you uh, just a couple of days ago up in Vancouver at Jay Martin's um, Resource uh, Investor Conference. Um, we actually got to share a panel together. Um, I really liked your um, approach in terms of how you just sort of look at the macro economy. Um, we spent some time in the green room with, with uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth afterwards. Um, really like how data-driven you are, your command of the data, um, but also kind of when I like to get into sort of, you know, um, observations about the macro economy that kind of get me a little bit wound up, I, I, I sort of sense we get wound up about the same issues. And so I'm sort of, I'm excited to have this discussion with you. Um, lots of material to dig through. If I can, though, let me start at the high level, as I like to do with these discussions. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? So I've been at this now just over 25 years as an analyst, Adam, as a professional money manager. And what I've learned in that experience is that we cannot afford to be backward looking. Um, you know, the only data that is certain is the stuff that's already happened. And even some of that 
gets revised in retrospect. So you really have to be forward looking. And it's very difficult to predict the future because a lot of variables, as we've learned in the last few years, can happen. Pandemics, wars, all kinds of crazy things can happen. But your job as a risk manager is still to look forward and try and assess probabilities. And so when I look forward at uh, the current state of the world economy, um, all of the, the extraneous events that have happened in the past few years, um, I think that we have earned a downturn in the global economy. We're overdue. I think we were heading into that in 2019 before the pandemic. We had an expansion that was driven largely by uh, really low interest rates, but there was a lot of consumption. Growth was peaking out in uh, just before the COVID pandemic hit. And then we had this really anomalous period of government stimulus and everything sort of uh, changed the near-term trends. But now I think we've gone back to the longer-term pattern, which is, again, a massive amount of consumption and stimulus has now been consumed. Uh, and we are heading into the contraction part of the economy. In fact, you know, typically when you get to the cutting cycle, although the markets have been expressly jubilant at the idea of a Fed uh, cutting cycle starting in 2024, I know from experience that in fact, that's when the bulk of the job losses actually start to happen as you approach the cutting and during the recessionary part of the cycle. And indeed the worst of the bear market losses also happen once the Fed starts cutting because they they're in response to the slowing economic picture. And so I think that's why it's so hard for people to keep their wits about them, to not um, lose their way with all the noise and flashy stuff that's going on around us. But you have to always be looking for what can go wrong uh, because if you can get that, um, if you can protect yourself from the losses, over time, you're going to prosper better than if you're just chasing the latest trend. Okay. Um, very well said. Uh, you, you talked sort of more about the downturn in the economy that we've earned, um, especially as we head into this contractionary phase, uh, which maybe counterintuitively in folks' mind will, will largely start as the Fed is beginning to cut. Um, people gen generally tend to think, oh, easing is good, but it's history is is pretty clear that, you know, when you look at the past number of recessions, they basically followed, uh, you know, a, a, a spike in, in interest rates. And it was only after we started cutting that the recession really arrived in force. Um, you didn't talk so much about markets. You made you made one comment about market losses. The, the, the brunt of bear markets tend to happen on the, those rate cutting uh, down cycles as well. But does that mean that you're somewhat pessimistic for financial asset prices from here? So for the risk side of the equation, um, typically during this part of the cycle, when you get into the, the disappointment in terms of, you know, the economic data and you get revisions, as we saw today, we had uh, revisions to the 2023 jobs numbers, um, a, a reduction of some 430,000 jobs. Um, it's always sort of typical that you start seeing that because there's a lot of guesstimation that goes on. But yes, in terms of the risk cycle, this is the, the time when typically equities and commodities and corporate debt um, all sort of disappoint, um, especially this cycle, Adam, because as you know, we've come into this with really euphoric pricing. We very much had a double top in terms of the broad markets, um, you know, whether it's the NASDAQ or the S&P and yes, held, uh, held up by a handful of big tech names. 
but it still managed to complete a double top uh, back to near where we were in the October 2021, so more than two years ago. And I remember a very similar pattern again in the 2000 cycle and in the 2008-9 cycle, where you had that rebound on belief that we were going to get to the end of the easing cycle and cuts and that that was going to solve all the ills. And in fact, it doesn't solve all the ills because the cutting takes just as long to filter through in terms of stimulus or relief as the hiking did. You know, So the hiking took 12 to 24 months to start hitting. It's really now coming up with the refinancing, especially in the corporate debt market, especially in households and especially in places like Canada. But all of that is the reason why people take, uh, you know, get get it wrong or mistake um, the the cutting for, you know, the worst is, sorry, the hiking as if the worst is behind us economically, when in fact, it's only just starting now to really have that drag um, that that is in the works. Okay, so now you've done it, Danielle. You have uh, you've fallen right into one of my favorite topics to to talk about, <laughs> which is the lag effect, right? So you talked about the the drag, but but that's basically caused by the lag of uh, the tremendous amount of of increase in the cost of of capital uh, that we forced onto the system um, over the past couple of years. So you know we we, we deformed the so just to make sure I've got your progression correct. Um, you felt like the system was entering a contractionary phase at the end of 2019 and probably would have fallen into some sort of recessionary um, uh, environment or at least slower growth environment um, with some some clearing out of, of malinvestment associated with that in 2019. But then we had COVID, right? And then all the rules got thrown out. We deformed the system to a greater extent, arguably, than it's ever been deformed before. Um, and uh, at this point, um, uh, a lot of that artificial um, intervention that was going on is is now being bled out of the system. You could, you could use a term I probably way overused on this channel. Uh, the pig is largely through the python at this point in time. And so we're set up back to where we were in that, that 2019 stage. Um, uh, except what's different this time is we have a system that had become, a, you know, pretty much addicted to incredibly cheap capital um, that now is facing a much, much higher uh, capital cost because we've we've uh, jacked interest rates up so so much. Um, so uh, everybody that's talking about a soft landing or a no landing is essentially saying, well, there's not going to be a lag effect this time. And you're nodding as I'm saying this, um, but I believe, and you correct me here, but I, I believe that you think there will be a lag effect. We're already seeing lots of signs of it. You mentioned, you know, corporations, you mentioned households. Um, so uh, right now, um, you just wrote a piece about how real rates in the U.S. are now at 2.4%. That's the highest they've been since the great financial crisis, um, you were citing the work of the folks at, at Hoisington, which is where Lacey Hunt works. Um, by the way, he's going to be, I'm going to be interviewing him next week, so I'll get him to weigh on this too. But what, what are the implications of this high real cost of debt right now, given where we are in the cycle? So as you'll notice, um, we've had a lot of layoff announcements in the in 2024 year to date, the tech sector alone has laid off about 25,000 people, uh, a huge amount of white collar jobs. And it's it's across the board, right from DuPont to IBM to 
finance sector, you know, to the tech space, everyone is really cutting back. And these are the highest, uh, as I say, the highest paying jobs are really in the, in the line of fire. And what you see at this part of the cycle, Adam, is um, that the companies become very fixated on how do they cut their costs, right? So there's a wall of maturities coming for the corporate sector, you know, who also borrowed a lot of money when interest rates were at all time lows, um, under 1% in many cases. Those had terms to them, which are coming up for renewal this year, next year. And the interest rates that they're facing are sometimes four and 5% higher than what they had originally borrowed that money at. All at a time when you're already seeing a downturn in terms of durable goods, in terms of spending by the households, in terms of capital investment by companies. So the fixation now is on how do we cut overhead? How do we lay people off, you know, pull back on investment, all to kind of shore up cash because companies tend to be terrible at coming into these cycles as well as bit as well as households um, in that they are spending a lot and thinking all is well when rates are low, when you know, when sales are high. And they're often underprepared for the downturn, even though it's an absolutely natural reoccurring phenomenon, it seems to always strike people as an utter, you know, unexpected event. And so what they do initially is they lay people off. And I think that we're going to see that continue. Um, it's quite typical when you get the, the uh, re-steepening of the yield curve, which is what you were referring to um, in the initial comments there, that you know the spread starts to get positive. We've come in significantly. The 10-2 year spread was as 108 basis points wide at, back in July, and it's now almost actually flat. And now we are likely to see that continue to steepen. That is typically commensurate with this spike in job losses. So this is all very textbook stuff that we're starting to see. And again, it is First of all, a, a boost, it's often a boost in terms of stocks will sometimes rally on the idea that the C-suite is cutting their costs. So there's an idea that they'll somehow be able to protect margins. Right, profit um, margins and, will go up, yeah, because you're- yeah, yeah, and the consensus right now is still expecting or hoping for double-digit earnings growth for the S&P looking into the next year. And that's all, again, very typical. The issue, though, is that sales start to fall more than they can cut costs. And this is where margins, you know, it's 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 one thing to manage your your overhead and try and maintain your profit margin if your sales are steady or increasing. But if they start to go down, then it becomes much harder. And the sales start to diminish typically because you're laying off so many people. So all these consumption units in the economy start to become unable to keep up their spending at the level that they were during full employment. So again, all very typical stuff. And it's in that next phase when stocks realize that they're priced for protect, per, perfection and expecting, you know, starting at a ridiculous price to earnings multiples. And now if we get, as I say, a downdraft, and it's very typical to see earnings come off 20 to 50% sometimes, Adam, at this point in the cycle when the economy starts contracting. And so then you realize that the PE that was already rude at 30 times earnings was actually more like 50 times earnings or 40 times earnings. And that's when you tend to get a liquidation um, beginning. And also central banks always cut faster then it took them to hike, right? And again, mm -hmm. once they start cutting, they start to look a little panicked and that really adds to the fuel of a negative sentiment in terms of people thinking that the world is ending. Okay, uh, lots to dig into there. Um, so you say that, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of textbook signs right now of, of going into a contractionary cycle. 
Um, and to your point about January, which is not even over yet, you know, has seen a pretty pronounced um, spike in, in layoffs uh, at big brands across a number of different industry sectors. If this continues to play out textbook wise in, in a way that you think it may, what inning are we in right now in terms of the contraction? And maybe let's just start with, with job losses. Um, do you expect us to just sort of see a steady dribble? Do you expect us to, to turn into a flood? You know, I just want to remind folks when we go back into previous recessions that we've seen, like, like 08 and 01, you know, you'd have these months where you were having, you know, hundreds of thousands of people laid off every month. Like, would you expect us to get into that type of territory? Well, you know, it's more like a percentage thing. It's very typical to see the unemployment rise at least a full percent in the first year of a recession. And in Canada, which is a very cyclical economy, because 60% of our, for example, of the TSX is materials, financials, and the oil and gas sector. So we tend to be a very cyclically employed uh, economy as well. So it is common that we would see even a two to 3% increase in our unemployment rate during a recession. We've already seen it spike up from the just under 5% to about 5.8% today. Um, the US economy, again, that's been a very slow to move. The unemployment rate is sub 4% still, but it would be very typical to see the unemployment rate rise a percent or a percent and a half over the next year or so. And the thing that is also really difficult or challenging in these cycles is that while unemployment is slow to move at the start of the contraction, uh, you know, people are, are loath to lay people off, the, the, the companies try and keep their, you know, cut back the work week, which we've seen, the average work week has come down, the amount of people trying to work two and three jobs to make ends meet, that's all very textbook again. But it, it, the, the really difficult part is that even when the economy bottoms in terms of GDP and you, know, you start to get some recovery and typically the stock market will start to sniff that out at some point you know, after you've had the central banks cutting for several months already. Again, we never get a bottom in the stock market until central banks have been cutting rates for some time already. So this idea or hope that we could have seen the bottom you know, in 2022 when they were only uh, increasing interest rates at that time would be extremely unusual and anomaly historically. And um, what you typically will see is that the unemployment rate will continue to rise even after the economy is bottomed out. So that's why it's really hard on household sector who comes into it with low savings and too much debt. And we've really seen that in spades in Canada, uh, really bad. We are worse today than you guys were at the top of your 2006 household sector credit bubble property mania. Um, I know you've had a big run in the property market again in the last couple of years, but relative to Canada, you guys are really sober. Because yeah, we're, we we're, we're to, amateurs when it comes to housing bubbles relative to you guys. We have lost our banana up here. It is horrendous. Um, and so I'm, I'm really worried about the Canadian economy this time. We're much less diversified. We're much more uh, um, levered. And I think that, you know, even if the U.S. doesn't have to have a deep recession this cycle, and let's not forget, Adam, that you had a very relatively mild recession the last time the tech bubble burst in 2000. It wasn't really until 2001 that you had some sort of contraction, but the stock market still fell more than 50%. And I'm talking the mm -hmm. broad market. And of course, the NASDAQ lost 80% and took 15 years to recover its prior cycle. 
And we are really back at that kind of extreme valuation when it comes to love and adoration for the tech sector. We've really gone overboard again here. The AI uh, phenomenon, you know, just belief that somehow that was going to change the world overnight. That's all fed into it. Um, and of course, we still have all the crazy, you know, uh, bullish sentiment, speculative fever. We still have, you know, a sentiment at all time highs and lots of people doing how do I play this daily sort of mentality. And I, all that tells me that we haven't yet seen the bottom here. All right. So um, haven't yet seen the bottom um, is, I don't know, it, it's kinder terminology than maybe, hey, we are really uh diluting ourselves and being excess excessively speculative and we could be setting ourselves up for some really painful losses here and i don't want to put those words in your mouth but just kind of connecting a lot of the dots um from what i hear you saying i get the impression that you think uh that we could be at one of those cycle highs that we look at when we look at the historic charts and say boy this really looks like uh the type of euphoria and you know lack of of worry about the future uh that it, it, investors type you know tend to uh, exhibit right before the wheels come off and you have some pretty big market corrections like 50% generally or whatnot so how worried are you that we are really sort of at that danger zone right now um I don't see any reason why we shouldn't expect a downturn like we've seen in the last two cycles because we really haven't mended anything in terms of the um, lack of rules and and uh, controls on financial speculation in the in the whole sector. Um, we have a lot of really crazy retail products that have come to market um, in the la in the low rate environment, Adam, you know, which was that suppression of more than a decade when money was free. That was a horrible training ground. I've likened it to those of us who like to run or hike that it was training people to run only downhill. And now we're into the mountainous terrain and they're realizing that they can barely walk flat, never mind scale mountains. That's really what we're dealing with here. We have a whole generation of people who don't understand anything about the value of money or how investments are valued. And I don't even blame them because they've been trained really by, as I say, this environment where everyone was getting free credit and you know it was it, it was as if it was paying to borrow money at one point there when uh, the opposite um, a few years ago. So we really uh, set people up for a big failure here and it's the financial sector in general. You know, I'm very uh, critical of the salesmanship in the financial sector because I've seen it over and over again. They have this vested purpose in getting people to buy the riskiest assets, the junkiest junk that they wrap in all these fancy, you know, marketing labels. Um, we're seeing that with Bitcoin ETFs today, but we've seen it with all kinds of private credit and private equity. You know, again, these used to be the purview of billionaires who could afford to put a little bit of capital into something that was really speculative and know that they may probably lose that money, but they, there's a small chance they could make something over time. What we've really got in the last few years is this um, obsession with trying to win money instead of investing. And it's been a, a tricky time to be someone who is uh, trained in taking measurements because it was as if your whole body of knowledge was irrelevant. 
you know, if you would do analysis as a fundamental analyst, I would do work on certain asset classes or, or companies or sectors and determine that it was probably 30% over fair value, and yet it would go up for a considerable period of time. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really, uh, as I say, a grown-up, sober. You have to continue to have a discipline because if you don't, you really will fall for any scam that's going. And I think, again, the internet and the social media bonanza has really kept us all very click oriented short-term focused. And that's really been perfect for the financial pariahs out there, the predatory environment that sucks people in. Look at the Robin Hood craze, you know, where everyone was seduced by flashing lights and beeps uh, to take on all kinds of gambling risk. And that's really gutted the strength out of the household sector, out of a lot of the companies too. As you know, Adam, there's something like 40% of the smaller, more economically sensitive Russell 2000 companies today are negative uh, burning cash, don't make enough to um, actually keep their doors open if they can't access free money. So you've got a whole bunch of people in the real estate sector. There was a bunch of you know private investors, individuals buying up properties that didn't make any sense. I was writing about it two years ago, even when rates were, you know, uh, mortgage rates in Canada, you could get a mortgage rate of 1.5%. But people were paying so much for these properties that they were still negative carry, even at that. And they were subsidizing that out of household income thinking, oh, well, it's an investment, you know, it doesn't matter, I'll just refinance it later. Well, that wall of refinancing is now coming up, you know, a lot of people took out five year terms. And, um, you know, uh, during the pandemic, which are coming up for renewal this year, next year, and those rates that they're facing, even if the central bank is back to cutting sometimes in the second half of, of 2024, you know, that doesn't mean mortgage rates will be back under 2% anytime soon. And so the negative carry on those properties is going to continue to erode the cash flow, which is increasingly declining. And that's going to bring more things to uh, want to be liquidated and sold. And it's that liquidation phase that we really are waiting for, because all of the ingredients is there. And liquidation means people are indiscriminate selling in the way that they've been indiscriminately buying the past few years. So there's a lot of opportunity in that, but only for the people that are very careful about preparing for it in advance. All right. Um, I, I'm making a big earmark here to make sure that near the end of the discussion, we get to ways in which people could prepare in advance for that, what, what you think might be some prudent ways for that. Um, uh, Danielle, you do such a great job of, of packing like 20 things that I want to <laughs> dig into in your answers. Um, and, and I want to talk uh, in a moment about the Canadian market and how in many areas um, it is giving, and we have a number of Canadian viewers of this program, so they're obviously I want to make sure that they get some good Canadian content. But I think for a lot of U.S. viewers, Canada is offering a preview of coming attractions given how your economy is set up. Um, one, you, you talked about how it's more concentrated, so it's probably going to be more sensitive to some of the dynamics we're talking about. But also your housing market, you have a different mortgage duration structure in Canada. And uh, I think it's something like, you know, 20 plus percent of your mortgages re-rate every year, um, maybe even more than that, because you you have a certain amount of people that, that take out variable mortgages from day one. Um, and so the lag effect and its impact on the housing market will be felt presumably much faster in your country than it will be here. Um, let, let me ask you this question first, though, again, just to try to do a little bit of counterbalancing here. <clears throat> um, we just got the, Q3, the Q4 GDP numbers 
for the U.S. And uh, they came out at 3.3% versus 2% expectations. So that was a 5%, sorry, a five sigma beat when you look at the distribution curve of what analytics expectations were. So, you know, the narrative, at least this week here in the U.S., is what recession worries, right? Like economy is mm -hmm. growing much stronger than anybody could have hoped for. Uh, Janet Yellen, former uh, Fed chair, now head of the Treasury, uh, was just interviewed, and she said she thinks that 2024 is going to be, quote, a very good economic year. Um, she lists a whole bunch of reasons why. Consumer confidence, their spending, jobs are, are, are strong. Uh, and then she concludes by saying, I see no reason why that can't continue. Um, mm. So uh, you've got people on that side of the story saying, God, what are you doing? Listen, you bearish guys, like you, you, you always try to see the any kind of puff of cloud on on a beautiful blue sky day. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's a lot of other stuff going on, and you've done a good job of 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 uh, you know reciting a litany of all the things that you look at. But what's your counter to that? Okay, so the first thing is no offense to Miss Yellen, but if you listened to her, you would have made catastrophic errors repeatedly throughout your life in terms of finance. Um, you know, those people are meant to be cheerleaders for the economy. They want to get reelected. That's their job. I'm not saying they're bad at their job. Clearly, they are in positions of power and have maintained that a very successful bureaucratic career. But having said that, there's never a politician that's going to look forward and say, hey, guys, I think storms are coming. You better take shelter because that they have this belief that if you say anything like that, you're going to make it worse in terms of, you know, rising concern or making people more defensive. And that as they pull back, you're going to make the downtown worse. So their job is to be the economic cheerleaders. That's for sure. The second thing about GDP numbers is they are, as you know, backward looking. They will continue to revise those over the next several quarters, sometimes years after the fact, Adam. And guess what? They always revise them down, right? So the first estimates are always more optimistic and positive, but again, backward looking. The other factor there, of course, is that we know, and Daniel Martino Booth has done some great work on this in terms of the additional stimulus that was flowing into the U.S. economy just out of handouts to small businesses you know, up until even the summer, um, and those right. were not in any of our models in terms of expectations because they were just random handouts that continued and many of them fraudulent and many of them will be clawed back. So this gets to my point about, you know, it, you can make things look great in the near term by all kinds of means, but at some point in the retrospect, they start to become, um, you know, down downsized. And I think that you know, they could, what Miss Yellen is talking about there, you could see that they, you know, do try and do more of that. I mean, it is an election year, no one has to tell you that. So they are doing everything they can to placate the masses. Um, the thing here is that the business cycle has never been arrested permanently, and no, no election has ever been able to stave it off, uh, other than, you know, there's just too much weight to the overall economy that the government doesn't have enough means to offset it with handouts. And you've got, as I say, this huge default cycle unfolding um, across, uh, you know, whether it's student debt, whether it's bankruptcy surging 30%. I mean, this is real stuff happening in the real economy and just pointing out, you know, 
uh, hopes and dreams doesn't counteract the weight of that. So the other thing I would like to point out is that, again, you didn't have a big recession in 2001. Actually, in Canada, we didn't have a recession at all in 2001 cycle, and our stock market still fell 50%, and our corporate debt market still is highly correlated with the equity cycle. We still had a significant amount of layoffs. And, you know, the lesson that Canada took, unfortunately, you were saying we're a precursor or a warning for you, you, you in America. The irony of that, of course, is that we followed your playbook to a T, you know, so the reason that Canada didn't have such a challenging time in the 2008 recession and that our housing market, we did have a downturn, but it really rebounded very quickly, is that we did not follow down the path of the um, you know, junk debt that was propping up the, the U.S. housing market, the securitization of all that junk debt, the big short factors were not widely prevalent in the Canadian market. We wanted them to be. Don't get us wrong. The politicians were calling for uh, a replication in Canada of your, you know, liar loans and uh, zero, zero principal payment interest only, all that. We started to follow you, but fortunately, you were just that much ahead of us. And when the wheels started to come off in the credit markets in 2007, our government pulled back from some of the things that were about to be approved or um, widely spread here. But the, the lesson that was taken in Canada was unfortunately that we were superior or somehow conservative. You know, our Mark Carney, the head of our Bank of Canada, became widely lauded and went on to head the Bank of England and the Financial Stability Committee. And really Canada got this rap as this really special prudent place. In fact, we just got lucky because we didn't get into all the craziness in time for the big collapse. But we went on to replicate you the last 10 years in that we have really doubled down on the housing bubble. So yeah, our you, average- You took our playbook and then you put it on steroids. Exactly, as did China, by the way. And I think that's a major factor for the world too. You know, the second largest economy next to the United States, they really took a playbook. Canada and China were really, Australia, New Zealand, some of the commodity-centric countries were really in cahoots, so to speak, with China and its demand and its stimulus that it brought in after the 2009 collapse. And they really set about, you know, building out the property sector uh, the, of all kinds in China, which took a huge amount of commodities. So the commodity producers rebounded more quickly. And we saw that, you know, the U.S. struggled more. But now, we have the opposite conditions where China's in the middle of a big bust happening in their property sector. As you know, their stock market has fallen back to where it was in 2005, for heaven's sake. And my concern with regard to the Canadian stock market, we haven't seen anything like the S&P 500 style appreciation. We've had basically, you know, the peak of the cycle in 2008, our, our TSX got to about 15,000, today around 21,000. We've had about 2% a year of growth if you average that out over that time. But the problem here today is again, 30% of the market being in financials, which are highly levered to this whole imploding credit problem in the household sector. And we've got now the probability that the TSX could retouch 11,000, which would be almost a 50% drop from here without with just kind of being a run of the mill recession. And we know from history that the worst recessions, the deepest and the most difficult to recover from are the ones that are led by housing. So that's why I'm really concerned, particularly about Canada, 
Um, now, on the on the upside from that, we desperately need lower prices. We have had such a misallocation of capital over the past many years, as people obsessed about granite counters and you know adding all sorts of of utility other things to their homes or having two and three homes, a, a ski chalet and a cottage, all of them with mortgages, all of them levered, on all of them dependent on very low interest rates. And of course, none of that made us more productive. None of that invested anything that was going to produce income down the road. So we really had a very uh, destructive period in our, in our economy, and I think we're going to be paying for that. The one positive note I would add is the immigration influx, which we have had, which has been much better than most developed economies, certainly better growth rate than, you know, in Europe or the UK or even in the United States. Now it's very difficult and problematic in the short run to absorb millions of new people over a short period of time. And there's a lot of, of friction and, you know, waiting lines and it drove up rents and it's caused the inflationary impulse to get worse in Canada. But on the upside, those people over time will help us to reboot our economy because we have an aging demographic here as well. So it is an investment. That's what an investment looks like. And this is, I guess, the point that I'd like to make above all else, which is we've become so misguided in our idea of what an investment looks like. People think an investment is a, something that you know makes you a X dollars right away and every year thereafter it grows by a certain amount and if they don't get that they're disappointed and that's ultimately not what an investment is an investment is something where you put capital in with the idea that it will add to your prosperity or your efficiency or your innovation or your you know your products that help you in terms of uh, making things that the world will want down the road. So the influx of immigration is actually going to help us, but it's going to be an expense for a few years here as we help those people get on their feet. And then we really do have to reboot our economy for the new energy economy. We have still this you know fixation on oil and gas in Canada primarily. And we really need to build out all kinds of energy um, and to diversify our economy. So there's a lot of technological stuff there that's come on, on, on stream, which will help us do that. But a lot of the policies and subsidies are still antiquated and focused on the wrong things. All right. Gosh, again, so much to dig into there. Um, I do very much appreciate your, your point there about, um, you know, the need to, um, have have a renewed respect for what an investment is. Um, I, I've railed many times that we've we've sort of created, especially in the millennial and Gen Z generations, um, a culture of speculation. It, we 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 basically taught them that speculating is investing or speculating is well, the way. and because governments keep having your back, right? So you know, people are critical of the young generation, and I get it. I've got a couple of twenty somethings myself. Um, and they're very critical of this idea that people, you know, the, the young people don't want to work and they don't want to pay their share and all this sort of thing. And I would say, well, what do you think they would take from watching the last 15 years where, you know, even back 23 years ago when the long-term capital debacle started and Alan Greenspan taught the world that we could financialize our way out of everything and that, you know, they were the maestros and the every, every, you know, 2008 blow up, you have the government taxpayers coming to the rescue and people not taking their hits, not taking their lumps. And we've really just got that on steroids again over the past few years. So, you know, every time that the, that the taxpayers are brought in to bail out financial institutions 
or malactors are allowed to get away with breaking all the rules and paying small fines, you really engender a whole population of people who thinks, well, why should I have to pay back my student loans or my exactly. business debts or the things? Why would I have to when the whole world is getting a bailout? And I think that's the mentality that's really brought us down and is going to cost us over the next while. Yeah, and I think kind of tied to that, it's almost been a survival mechanism, which is, you know, if you're in the younger generation, you're looking at the highly unattainable cost of living for a middle class lifestyle. You know, you ask a Gen Z or about buying a house, they've already given up, right? Um, and the only way they see to potentially being able to do that is, well, maybe if I buy the right crypto or the right meme stock, uh, and I get one of those winning lottery tickets. Well, then that's my way, you know, to that lifestyle. So again, that that's just how they've adopted. I, I guess that's how I need to invest is to try to get these lottery tickets as opposed to what you're referring to, which is the old tried and true short term, you know, sacrifice in the near term for a long term greater goal. Right. That's right. And you know what? Again, during the pandemic, there was a lot of people our age, Adam, who thought that helping their kids and grandkids meant giving them money so they could lever themselves into overvalued property markets. Right. And that was actually not helping them. So we have to get away from, I saw a stat today, I think it was, uh, what was it? 50% of parents say they help their, uh, you know, 20 something and 30 something children make car payments and mortgage payments. And the point would be that that's actually not helping people. You know, if a person doesn't have enough income to, um, to pay for a car, the correct thing to do is actually to walk, drive a bike or take the right. transit until you save enough. That's certainly what I did. And I'm not trying to be holier than thou. I'm just saying it's normal to be broke when you're young, unless you come from a wealthy family that gives you money. And even that doesn't show up as positive over the lifetime of a person if they're given too much help. They don't develop their own muscles. So it, we have to get away from the idea that everybody needs a car and everybody needs a house. We need to invest in things like public transit and bike lanes and things so that people can get around without having to take on a car payment. Because guess what? Then they're building up their savings and then they have funds to invest in things like their education. And then same thing goes with a house. If you do the math, it's not hard to figure out if it's more cost effective to rent than it is to buy. But, you know, this is the millionaire next door. You remember that great book from, was it the 90s? Absolutely. But I, you Stanley know, got, and Danko. Yeah. Right. It's got all. I've actually studies. interviewed William Danko, one of the living authors of the book. So, yeah. There you go. So it, it shows in there, the studies confirm that it doesn't help people to get them into things before their time, so to speak. And it actually, the most intelligent thing to do is find a, a, a cheaper rent share with someone, find a way to keep your costs low so that you can build up your savings. And then at some point when property prices come down, and they will, Adam, I definitely don't buy into this idea that property prices are at a permanently high plateau and they will never come back down again. That simply flies in the face of all historical evidence. And I would submit that at some point, and, and there are certain areas where you can do this. Nick Gurley, I know you, I think you interviewed Nick, but he does that great, you know, looking at individual cities and showing where it is more cost-effective to rent than buy. There are some places where the math will make more sense to buy than rent. 
But right now, the preponderance of areas, because pricing, you know, in Canada, home prices basically doubled in about a four-year period. You know, at the peak of the 2022 and the spring of 2022, our average home price up here was $850,000, Adam. And we're talking about starter homes around seven dollars and $800,000. Um, in the big cities where the bulk of the population lives, in Vancouver, where we were, or in Toronto, near where I live, the average home price was more like a million dollars. So again, it's just bonkers. It makes no sense. And yet people were thinking that if they didn't buy that, you know, that they were missing out. The FOMO was incredible. And young people were being encouraged by older people that they had to get on the property ladder. You're going to recognize all this, of course, from your own experience in the United States cycle in the 2006 episode where, you know, immigrants and every person was thinking they had to somehow do anything possible to get themselves into property at any price. Well, that's obviously a right. terrible idea. Well, and, that's, and, and, you know, and we went back to that. Maybe not as crazy as you guys, but but during COVID, when that money really started flowing, that's exactly what happened. And and zero rates. You know, I love to talk about a mortgage calculator. You can find them online for free. And you know, the reality is that most people could not afford to buy the home that they have today if they were looking to put a you know a good down payment down and borrow at current rates. So all the people that think they're going to have a ton of buyers coming out of the woodwork here, um, you know, in the spring, there's a lot of hope about hopium about the spring right now that, um, you know, at the current prices, they're just completely unaffordable. So, yeah, you might see an, a sort of elation again and people thinking, oh, great, even if the central banks were to start cutting rates, the bond market is always already, um, you know, rallied significantly since the fall such that mortgage rates have come down a percent. But we're still talking about five percent uh, ish you know, rather than less than 2%-ish at the very bottom in rates during the pandemic. So, and 5% is a really modest uh, rate of interest historically. As you know, Adam, it's not a high mortgage rate. So it's not that rates are abhorrent. It's that prices, prices. remain abhorrent. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, Danielle, I, I knew I liked you. Um, you said so <laughs> many things that I want to respond to. And, and, and one I'll just squeeze in is, there's all sorts of reasons, many of which I've talked about previously on this program, why you you don't want to come in and and become um, a, a financial um, backstop for your your kids because they they don't develop the the muscles to overcome adversity and learn how to do all this stuff and and all that. But a huge issue that that we saw where people were saying, yeah, I'm helping my kids get into uh, one of these properties is they they put money down to help the kid get into the overpriced house with the big mortgage. And now the kid is stuck as a mortgage surf for the rest of their life, right? So it's definitely not helping those kids that actually once they're in there, even with that initial parental help, can't afford it, right? They're just trapped in that thing. So and, they, and people don't about. stay. People don't stay, Adam, as you know. You know, the, the reasons people move are divorce and change of job. They need to be mobile for career purposes. Space no longer fits. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons that people ultimately don't stay in a property indefinitely, infinitum. And in fact, what they more likely do is develop a very negative sentiment and start thinking, I got to get out of this thing. And that's already starting, you know, not just in the short term rental cohort where people piled in thinking they could rent for obscene short term rentals and keep, you know, paying. And now they're realizing that they're subsidizing that monthly and the panic starts to become really palpable. And I think that's already beginning.
Okay, and that, that's what I want to dig into. So um, we're, we're beginning to run low on time, and I want to make sure I get to your market outlook and how you think people can prudently prepare for what's coming from an asset allocation standpoint. But as I mentioned earlier, your housing market is on a faster timeline than mine here in the U.S., given how your mortgages are set up, given the craziness that you've you know described for us of the current market there. As mortgages are starting to re-rate at these much higher mortgage rates on a relative basis, are you beginning to see any bursting or initial bursting at all of the property market there? Yes, for sure. We're seeing um, north of the city or oh, actually in and around, it's called the greater Toronto area, in and around the city of Toronto, there's many municipalities, by the way, where millions of the new immigrants, some 60% of the you know 4 million people that have come to Canada in the last few years um, have migrated into this high population area called the GTA. And all the bedroom communities within commute, you know, an hour commute kind of thing of the city have saw, saw during the pandemic, a whole bunch of people moving out to the suburbs, you know, whether it was for work for home or just to get more green space because, you know, concern about the virus or what have you. A lot of people, as I said, went to, you know, the cottage country, which uh, is in this area or um, ski areas and bought up properties. Um, and um, already, and I track several uh, realtors, mortgage lenders in this area, and they are posting constantly the listings that are coming up by power of sale. I have several friends in the legal community who are extremely busy right now with the power of sale flow um, that is coming through the court system. And this is not just alternate lenders now, this is big banks, the the big five or big six banks, as we call them in Canada, which have, you know, supposedly the more conservative loan portfolio. But again, during the pandemic, they were doing all sorts of crazy things, including letting people negatively amortize their uh, interest and add it to the principal. So you've got these mortgages, which have grown in terms of amortization periods from what was always conventional 20, 25 years. Many of them have mortgages now in the 35, 40, 50 and beyond um, in terms of the time it's going to take them to pay off. Some are literally getting the little infinity symbol on their statement because there's no chance that they're going to be able to pay it off at the current uh, <laughs> way that they're doing. So again, what we're noticing is liquidation starting. We're also noticing in a lot of suburbs, people setting homes on fire. I mean, if that's not desperation, I don't know what is, Adam, but they are um, seeing price declines of 20%. Already 30%, you know, and if you look at the national averages, it's come off perhaps 12% so far, but in cities like Toronto, I mean, we're having the lowest uh, home sales numbers that we've seen in 40 years in many areas. So, um, you know, I remember the 1980s cycle. I was a teenager back then, but my father was a builder. I remember it very well uh, how, you know, he had to carry homes for a couple of years before he could find buyers. Um, and that is typical. It is normal for a housing cycle to take four or six years before it bottoms and then for prices to not recover for many years after that back to the prior peak. So this is why if you come into them heavily levered, there is very little chance that the majority of people will be able to wait that out or, you know, wait until prices recover. Um, and so that is that is the issue. The more desperation spreads. And again, as I say, this is still with unemployment at you know, historically, the average unemployment rate in Canada has been 8%. We're not yet at six, we're only at 5.8. 
and we're already seeing great stress in terms of defaults and consumer solvencies. The trustees in bankruptcy are up 30% volume year over year. So they're coming into their very busy period. And so they should, because they went through a time of extremely low volume when everyone was getting free money and deferrals. All right. Um, well, you know, it, so many of these conversations that I have with experts like you, it really does come down to the the um, criticality of what happens with employment from here. Um, you know, if the employment market really starts to crack and we start having job losses at any really, you know, sizable scale, then I think all of the remaining underpinnings kind of keeping this whole edifice together, you know, really start breaking and, and it kind of becomes game on for those contractionary forces that you talked about at the beginning. You're, you're nodding as I'm saying all this. Um, all right. I, I could, I mean, Danielle, I could keep talking with you for hours and hours here. So we're just going to have to have you back on the program in the future. Um, as we begin to wrap up here, um, what is your general market outlook um, over, say, the next year or so? What are you expecting in 2024 from the markets? And if you can talk to a, a, an allocation standpoint, what assets do you like, do you not like in terms of your earlier comment about, um, you know, helping people, people who prudently prepare today can hopefully avoid a lot of this pain. And, and I don't know, maybe position for some game. You, you tell me. Yeah, well, um, we made actually 8% in 2008 in our client portfolios because we came into that downturn well positioned. Now it caused us, we had to do it in advance. You know, it's very hard to make the changes while the sort of world's on fire. You kind of have to be, do your analysis in advance and have good personal discipline about how long and how patient you are for these trends to unfold. But basically, the nub of the matter is that during the uh, the panic phase or the, the liquidation phase, when you know layoffs are rising and defaults are rising, that's typically when you want to be holding lots of things like that are liquid, like cash. U.S. cash for Canadians is always a you a good spot to see some capital gains without having to take on equity risk. Also, in terms of government bonds, we have a significant allocation in our portfolios to provincial municipal government bonds at this point. Um, those are also one of the few asset classes that rise in value while the risk side is falling out of bed. Um, the commodity space always takes a pretty big hit during a recession. You know, the oil price in Canada is quite significant in terms of people's sentiment and business models and, and factors that they do in terms of anticipating earnings. Um, it's common to see the price of WTI go down to the 40s. You know, it, it has peaked during the Ukraine invasion you know, many, many months ago, but it is still in and around the 70 range here. So you could see significant downside. So um, people think of commodities as some kind of a diversifier in terms of, you know, some of the other types of risk. However, during a recession, they tend to take a hit as well. So you have to be careful. Um, and the producers typically are just equities. So they all too will trade off as, as people are selling everything that anything and everything to raise cash in this environment. So I would suggest that, you know, I, I was saying this during the ultra low rate environment, and I do know some people uh, did this. And I'm so grateful when they say, hey, I did that during the low rate environment, which was to pay off their debt. I, you know, I said, if we could use low rates to get out of debt, when we get to the next part of the cycle, you'll be now that's what you call a real investment, something where you, you know, use your cash flow to pay off your bills so that you have net positive 
um, cash flow that you can now divert into savings for the rest of your life. I mean, that is a huge uh, positive. So um, it's still not too late if people have cash. I know a lot of people think they have to put all their life savings in the stock market regardless, and they will be sitting there with mortgages on their personal home and have money in the stock market, non-registered money. And I often look at those scenarios and say, you should be paying off your debt with this cash, it's not really investment money so long as you have personal liabilities because they're not tax deductible in Canada. I understand they are in America, but I would still suggest to people that it is not such a great thing to have debt, even if it's tax deductible, because it's much better to have things paid for. Your stability and your peace of mind and your ability to save will be so greatly enhanced by that. So I, I just say, you know, look at your overall portfolio in terms of your how much of it is in house equity how much is it in equities right now the ratio of people that have any money in the safest bonds is about four percent when you look at the overall household allocation really? um, and, oh, yeah and about 10 percent cash which is actually higher than i've seen in many portfolios when people show us their sort of holdings and say, what do you think? Um, and that's not surprising, right? Because we're the financial industry is really populated primarily by salespeople, whether it's realtor salespeople or investment product salespeople. And so they make their money by getting you to give them their cash and right. they put it into these various things. So you have to always be very sober in that in terms of an individual. And look, as I say, if you can, if you can take cash out of some of these riskier things, it's not too late to do that. Certainly, if you're going to reduce your leverage, so you're one of the few stable people, and then you can have um, building up your savings, making your buy list. Because if I'm right about the this, this setup that we've got here, it's going to be probably just as good as what we saw in 2000, 2008. And that means you could have a very significant uh, decline in some of these asset prices where everything will be on sale all at once. And then it'll be hard to pick from all the things that are great value. All right. So um, it sounds like priority should be capital preservation so that you have that dry powder to deploy when valuations are much more attractive. Um, just one comment uh, on bonds. Um, obviously, and I think when you talk about cash, you, you probably mean putting cash in things like T-bills or Canada's equivalent of that or whatnot, right? Yeah. But but also, you talked about the municipal government bonds, but but longer duration bonds. Would you expect those to do well uh, in this type of contraction that you're expecting, um, particularly if the central banks are chasing it all the way down with rate cuts, and therefore you'll get some cash flow from the bonds, but you'll also get appreciation as rates go down? Sure. So the long-term uh, treasuries, like the 20 and 30-year issues, they came off 40% in 21-22. So that was a horrendous bear market for those assets. Now, we don't hold those in client accounts because of the propensity for that kind of extreme downward skew is very um, you know, disruptive or unsettling for most people. But basically now you're also looking at a time when they have been greatly discounted. Now, you know, things that have come off 40% may not get back up to par because again, if they were issued when rates were next to nothing, I'm not suggesting we're gonna be back at zero rates in the next year. I really hope we're not, Adam. I really hope that we've learned something from the prior period and we've not decided to go back to the zero bound, but we shall see, right? We can't, that is impossible to know at this point. Um, but basically I do think the long uh, end of the treasury curve 
is for the people that can stomach it. And I say that with all seriousness, because a lot of people just would find that kind of volatility too unnerving, but there is an opportunity there for, you know, even a 20% rise in some of that long dated stuff that had sold off so significantly in the, in the past couple of years. So I think that, you know, that that's more like an equity market style volatility but it would be one of the few things that rises when equities fall typically. And um, the 10 year even is a less extreme um, positioning that you can take the 10 year treasury again, sold off. Now it rose something like 14% in the fourth quarter of 2023. So we have participated in some of that um, gains already, and that's great. But again, it is the more volatile end of the paper. So the person has to always be careful about what portion of their money they want in that kind of volatile asset, because you don't want to be scared out of it at the wrong time. All right. Very well said. Um, I feel like we're just scratching the surface of the iceberg here, Danielle. I look forward mm -hmm. uh, very much to having you on more in uh, the rest of 2024. Uh, two last questions for you. First one, for folks that have really enjoyed this conversation, perhaps this is their first introduction to you. Where can they go to follow you and your work? So I write a daily blog for free. I've done it for 16 years. I think I'm in year 17. It's called jugglingdynamite.com. It's um, named after a book I wrote um, that, of the same name. And um, I also, our firm website is venablepark.com. But basically, I do media regularly and uh, write on the blog daily. And most people follow me there. All right. Um, and Danielle, when I edit this, I'll put up the links uh, to your websites, both your websites on the screen so folks know exactly where to go. Folks will also put links in the description below this video too if you want to just go there with one click. Um, all right, uh, and something I've been doing recently uh, with other speakers I'd like to do with you, Danielle, which is we've been talking about money and finances the whole time here. What's one non-money related, non-financial investment you'd encourage folks to consider adopting in their lives? For me, that's really simple, Adam, and I think you would agree too. It's your health. And I don't mean that to sound like, uh, you know, trite. I mean, we've, I spoke about this mentality that's developed of governments, how will save us, will back us, will bail us out. Uh, I would say we've developed that kind of an attitude with respect to pharmaceutical interventions and, you know, some kind of hopelessness that it's, you know, everyone gets very unhealthy as they age. And I would suggest to you that that self-reliance piece is really important. Um, investing in your own strength and stability doesn't just mean trying to live debt-free and building up your savings and trying to avoid gambling, which is a highly destructive uh, occupation, but also just figuring out ways. And, and that means, you know, just exercise, diet, eating, but also your mental health, things that give you strength and stability mentally, not letting, you know, the world grab your eyeball and treat you with like a, give you severe ADD every five seconds, but <laughs> actually decide when you're going to view and what you're going to intake and how much you're going to, you know, uh, invest in terms of your own um, strength and calm. And I spend a lot of time keeping myself calm because I really think that is where our true power comes from. Wow, really well said. Uh, amen, sister. Uh, I got to meet you and your partner there in Vancouver. And uh, very obvious, you, you guys take very good care of yourselves physically. And, and having met you, I can attest to that, that degree of calm and poise. Uh, so you're living your advice. And uh, I couldn't agree with it more. Um, Danielle, this has just been wonderful. Thank you so much. Like I said, I'd love to have you back on. 
uh, on this channel later on uh, multiple times this year, if you're game for it. Um, hopefully you are. Oh, Adam, I'm a big fan of you and of your new channel, and I've followed your work for some time. So I'm just very appreciative that you thought to ask me. Thank you. No, oh, it's a huge honor. All right. Well, we'll see you soon, Danielle. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. All right. Well, now's the time on the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial, uh, financial advisory firms by Thoughtful Money, uh, to both react to what Danielle just said and also talk about anything that caught their attention in the markets over the past week. This week, I'm joined by lead partner Mike Preston. John Lodra has the week off. Mike, how you doing? And what did you think of Danielle? I'm great, Adam. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. That was just so fact-packed. Uh, th that talk was a little over an hour, I think. I've got a page and a half of notes. I, I just can't believe how much Danielle was able to cram into that just th that short period of time. So I know we don't have a whole lot of time. So what I'm going to try to do here is just reiterate or, or recap what I thought the highlights were of her, of her talk. It's obvious that Danielle has a lot of experience. She says she's got 25 years experience in this industry. Um, her firm uh, manages uh, funds for wealthy families. And she talked a couple different times about how our money manager has to be forward looking. It's absolutely right. And it's part, it's really the hardest thing about this business. And it's the hardest thing for an individual investor as well. You have to try to predict the future. And it's pretty pretty difficult when the Fed keeps tinkering with things uh, all the time. It certainly have been over the last 15 to 20 years. But you have to position yourself ahead of time. And things can go on a lot longer than you think they can. So this bubble has gone on a lot longer than we thought it could. And we've been publicly uh, saying that we've been fairly conservative for the last handful of years. And so you can feel out of step. You can even look like an idiot. You know, and you can look like an idiot now, or you can look like an idiot later. Basically, classic, is your choice. John Hussman quote, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's the truth. And 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 sometimes you can look like an idiot for a long time, uh, but you have to position ahead of time. You have to make a call. So many in this business are afraid to make a call. And what I heard from Dan Danielle is somebody that's not afraid to make a call. She talked about a double top in the S and P. It's true. The S and P five hundred so far has put in what you would call a double top. Uh, just today, the, the S&P hit an all-time high yet again. We're starting to see some signs of uh, weakening. The volume is is uh, slower. Uh, Mid-cap stocks like the Russell 2000 has been weaker again versus the S&P 500. Some of these things are warning signs, but there's no, there's, nobody rings a bell at the top. And, and we're not even saying that this is the top. In fact, there's no real indication that we're going to turn over imminently. That's the hard thing. Our short-term indicators are still bullish. Uh, we did a video yesterday on what some of our indicators are. They're telling us so far that the market is likely to go higher. And in fact, if I had to guess or if I had to bet on it, I'd say the market is likely to put in a little bit more of a blow-off top here. That's what the indicators are saying. But at the same time, the turn could come at any moment. So you have to be somewhat positioned ahead of time. We're at, at, at around 38 or 39% stock exposure 15% or more of that is hedged with an out-of-the-money put option down at 4,500 on the S&P, which takes us immediately down to the low 20s, 22, 23, 24% on that type of pullback. So we are positioned for that ahead of time. But at the same time, we're trying to ride the market a little bit if we get a little bit more of a move. And so Danielle talked about so much, so many other things. She talked about the spread. On the ten, uh, the 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 ten two spread, and I actually have that chart up, and I'm going to try to share it here. 
I think it's pretty important. Uh, it's been talked a lot. We, we, we've all been talking a lot about it over the last bunch of years. But finally, it looks like we're, we're, we're close to coming back to the zero bound. This is right from the St. Louis Fed. The St. Louis Fed, for people that don't know about it, has a whole bunch of great charts for free that anybody can access. And this chart goes back to 1980 or so. And you could see every time in this blue line here is the 10-2 spread, spread between 10-year bonds and two-year bonds. Every time it's gone negative and then gone back positive, there's been a recession. The recession is in gray here. So every single time. Now, we've been going on the longest time since a recession, since the 2008 recession. This COVID recession here, in my opinion, can be hardly called a recession. But after getting uh, uh, inverted by more than one point, we're only about 0.2% inverted here. So it wouldn't take much for this to uninvert. Our view is that short-term rates will come down. Uh, it seems like the market is anticipating the Fed's going to cut rates, but they don't totally believe it because short-term rates are still up there near 5%. And it's the short-term rates that the Fed controls. But Still, the market is speaking here, the, the bond market that is, and it, and it looks like we're not too far from in what we would call an uninversion. So that's a bad thing, ultimately. And don't forget what Danielle said about layoffs and stock market losses. She said that most of the damage comes after the Fed cuts. We certainly saw that in the housing crisis in 2008, 2009. Be careful for what you wish for, because when the Fed is easing, things are generally falling apart. And when you do so from these levels of the most overvalued market we've ever seen, with the most uh, constant intervention that we've ever seen, and really with no, in my opinion, plan B, Fed doesn't really have a backup plan. I think it's just more of the same. The downside could be severe and it could be long. So just to recap my 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 thoughts about what she said, she ended with um, a little statement about speculation versus investment. We've all, or many of us, have been drawn into speculation over the last bunch of years because the Fed drove us crazy with this, there is no alternative in the zero interest rate policy. But investment is more important now than ever. Speculation is almost certainly going to be punished. And she said pay off debt. Uh, there's a lot of risk in the current environment, the way that the Fed has constantly inter intervened over the last 20 years. Really, one of the best things you can do, like Danielle said, pay off debt. First thing you should do, pay off debt. Take cash flow and or assets, reduce debt. You put yourself in a much safer position. Also think about buying hard assets, gold, silver, and even real estate. Although real estate is a difficult one, as Daniel just talked about um, the, the, the northern part of Toronto there has just seen a ridiculous bubble, even more so than in your neck of the woods, it sounds like, in um, in San Francisco. Although I, I'm not sure if Danielle's from Toronto or Vancouver. I'm I'm sorry about that, Adam. I think you met in Vancouver. but I met in Vancouver. She's from Toronto. Yeah. All right. Well, good. And then she finished by saying uh, a few things about the long bond. The long bond, I think, is going to go higher. And that probably will coincide with the stock market drop or crash. I believe that the 10-year bond will go back below 3%. It's, it's about 4.2 right now. If that happens, it would be a 10 to 15% increase or capital gain in the value of the bond. And you get paid to wait. Everything, I, I would say, should be carefully considered in terms of your exposure or your allocation. But if you have no exposure to longer bonds, 
10%, 15% and the 10 to 20 year treasury makes a lot of sense here. So, um, you know, with that, I will uh, pause and, 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 um, let you Great. Speak. I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll take it over because you're, you're going right in the direction I wanted you to do, which is, you know, Danielle did a good job of giving a long litany, right, of of reasons to be concerned, right? I mean, who knows what's going to happen from here? We're, we're, we're going to watch. And that's why you're on this program every week with me here, Mike, is helping mm -hmm. us keep track of it in real time. Um, but she, I think, definitely made a good case um, for, hey, uh the, the the lag effect is real. It is going to matter this time. Folks that are singing soft landing, no landing, they're basically depending upon it being different this time. And it may not be. In fact, based on a lot of the indicators she looks at, she's said, look, this is sort of the textbook set of indicators I would expect to see going into a contractionary phase, right? So if we go into one of the, the general magnitude, it sounds like that she's expecting that I think, Mike, you think is, is certainly possible. Um, you know, a lot of regular investors, uh, one that, that sounds kind of scary, and a lot of them are saying, well, geez, I mean, how, how, can I, how can I position for that, right? How, how should I be starting to prepare in advance prudently, like, like Danielle was saying, um, but maybe also still playing in the game to a certain extent now, but just just reducing my uh, my risk exposure uh, if we indeed start heading down into a contractionary uh, environment. Um, and so uh, this gets to some big news that I just want to share with folks here, which is that um, you all heard me talk about the securities exam that I was studying for the other week and thankfully passed. Um, so now I'm able to to activate the other big part of thoughtful money that I've been waiting to do, which is the ability to connect regular investors who are asking these questions with good professional financial advisors um, who can just give them free advice. Um, so uh, folks may remember from my previous company, um, uh, if you want to have a free consultation, you know, what I basically encourage everybody to do is to first make the decision, am I going to be a DIY investor? Or am I going to work with a financial professional, somebody who can be my financial quarterback and come up with a plan and, and probably hopefully even execute it for me, right? Because most people, as we've talked about, Mike, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the bandwidth, and in many cases, they don't have the desire uh, to, to be th the main quarterback of their financial life. Um, and they're looking, for, looking to outsource to that to a good professional who can do it, right? Now, uh, I think that probably covers most people watching this video, and myself included. I work with a professional financial advisor, too. Um, the key is to find a good one, right? And that's where people have a, a lot of challenges. Um, and, you know, what I say is look, try to find one that's been in business for a good while, has a brand to protect, uh, is in good standing with FINRA and the authorities, but also really, like, understands and and takes into account the macro topics that we talk about on this channel with with all the uh, the guests we have on like Danielle. And that's where I think the universe gets a lot smaller. Um, there's a lot of financial advisors who just have played the, you know, uh, buy and hold, market's going to take care of you in the long run, just buy the dips whenever there's a dip. They're, they're playing the playbook that's actually worked pretty well over the past 10 years while there's been so much intervention going on, but a lot of that era I think is ending. And, you know, as Danielle said, even better than I could, the road ahead is probably going to get a lot more uncertain. Um, and so that's where you want a good experienced, well-informed financial advisor to, to advise you. So if you can find a good one, 
through your own means, excellent. That's that's perfect. I'm, I'm agnostic whom you work with. Um, but if you want to talk to one so that you can ask your questions and, and basically just get some general advice uh, and then figure out what to do, um, Thoughtful Money is now able to put you in touch with the financial advisors that you see on this program. So Mike and John from New Harbor Financial, Lance and his team from uh, Real Investment Advice, uh, and then uh, Jonathan Wellam's team at Rocklink Investments up in Canada. Um, and these consultations are totally free. Um, and Mike, you can you might want to just take a, a minute here and just tell folks generally what that conversation goes like. But, but this is where you just listen to their questions. You hear about their personal financial situation. You give them your advice of, hey, if you were a client of ours, these are the type of things that we would do. But that's it. There's no there's no commitment to work with you. There's there's no cost to this. Uh, it's just basically um, a free financial um, uh, mind meld with a, with a good professional like yourself. And the person can take that advice and do a DIY strategy on their own. They can bring that advice to their existing financial advisor and say, hey, I talked to these smart guys, do this instead. Or if they like you guys, they can continue conversations from there. So anyways, folks, um, the big news is, is if you want to set up one of those free consultations, just go to thoughtfulmoney.com, fill out the short form there. Uh, you'll be connected with whichever advisor uh, is the best fit or the one that you want to talk to. But Mike, if you can just take a minute here and explain to folks kind of what those conversations are like, what they could expect to have within them, um, just sort of how, how they go, let folks know. Yeah, Adam, thanks to you, we've been lucky enough to talk to thousands of people over the last bunch of years, and, and, and we've been working with you for more than 10 years. And our message has really always been the same. We're happy to talk to people. There's never any obligation. We have been uh, very, very um, fortunate to have grown our business quite a bit through this uh, fashion as well, because some of these people decide to work with us. But I'll tell you how it works. And it's really the best part of my job. I've been in this business since 1999. So I've been around the block a few times. I've been hardened. I've seen the ups and downs. I've felt all the emotions. I've gone through all of the psychology with clients, uh, two great bubbles and two crashes so far, and the third bubble we're living in right now. And so much of what we do is about psychology. And when I connect with somebody on the phone, I can I can really feel where they're coming from, where their fears or or aspirations are. And so much of the time, people just want to feel like things are going to be okay. They want to feel like it's okay to make a mistake because. A lot of times people make mistakes. I've made mistakes. I've made lots of mistakes. I'm completely human. And believe it or not, I don't know what's going to happen next month. Uh, I think I know what's going to happen over the over the, the totality of this market cycle. But we talk to lots of people every week. And, um, you know, if we talk to 20 people, maybe a couple of them decide to become clients, but there's never a push or an obligation for that. So what we're offering is a 30-minute conversation uh, we'll get right into it, talk about um, what's what's going on in your life, what concerns you, and then whoever you're talking to, well, if it's me, I'll tell you exactly how it goes. I'll give you some, some, some advice. I'll give you my opinion right on the spot. I'll share what we're doing. I'll share even... You know, details about what we're doing in our in our portfolio. Our attitude is if we try to deliver value to the world, then we're going to get something back too. And, and that's exactly what's happened. So thanks to you, Adam. We've been a great beneficiary of all of that. We hope to talk to a lot more folks. And um, you know, it's been it's been a fun ride. So thank you. All right. Well thank you for all the many people that you've helped over the years. And folks, like I said, <clears throat> 
you know, all, all I'm trying to do here is to help get as many people as possible connected with a good uh, resource to help, you know, help them have a higher odds, higher odds of building enough wealth to fund their life goals. And if you're able to do that on your own, fantastic. If you're able to get good advice, you know, from these free consultations and then use that to find an advisor in your local area, great. Or if you like these guys and you think that might be someone you want to work with, that's fantastic. I'm just trying to get as many people into a good lifeboat as possible because I hear from so many folks about just the very human concerns, fears, frustrations they have about having to be the the steward of their own capital in, a, in an investing environment that is uncertain and confusing is the one that we appear to be entering into here. And they just feel very vulnerable and kind of naked uh, on their own. Um, and like I said, most people, they don't have the bandwidth, uh, the expertise or the interest to do this, um, but but they're still doing it on their own right now. And they just feel like just super exposed and, and they're afraid they're going to make some sort of catastrophic decision. So again, folks, um, uh, if you want to have one of these consultations, go to thoughtfulmoney.com. All right, uh, moving on real quick to another bit of good news is uh, not only I think I've shared with folks here before that I've I've locked in a date for the Thoughtful Money uh, online conference that's coming up in March. And just as a reminder, that's Saturday, March 16th. Um, but now I've actually got a place to uh, drive you to to actually sign up for that. Uh, that's at thoughtfulmoney.com slash conference. Uh, and uh, there you'll be able to see all the speakers that we've lined up for the event so far and lock in the early bird discount uh, for the event. Um, real quick, let me just tell you who's who's said yes in terms of the faculty. It's already a fantastic lineup. We've got Lacey Hunt. We've got Michael Pento. We've got Stephanie Pomboy. We've got Ted Oakley. We've got Tom McClelland. We've got Danielle DiMartino Booth. We've got Brent Johnson uh, and uh, Mike Leibowitz, uh, who's going to talk on bonds. Matt Pippenberg just agreed to sign on. So, folks, this is becoming like, you know, uh, the best of the best of folks that have appeared on Thoughtful Money so far. Uh, it should be a phenomenal day. Don't worry if you can't watch live uh, on the actual day on Saturday, that Saturday the 16th, if you've got something else going on, because replay videos of the entire conference, all the presentations and all the live Q&A um, are going to be sent to everybody within 24 hours of the events end. Um, and just a quick reminder too, like I said, if you go now, you'll you'll lock in the early bird discount price. If you are a premium subscriber to my Substack, you'll get an additional $50 off the price. So I think the early bird price is like 20, uh, sorry, it's like 30% off of what the full ticket price will be. Um, and then if you're, a, a like I said, a, a, a premium subscriber member to my Substack, you'll get an additional $50 off of that 30% uh, discount. And, and look, I'm happy if you wanna game the system. Uh, it costs $15 a month to sign up for my Substack. If you wanna sign up for a month for 15 bucks just to get to $50 off, so you put $35 in your pocket, I'm totally fine with that. I think you'll get a lot of other value by being a premium subscriber, but if it's just that $35 savings that attracts you, hey, go wild on it. Um, one last thing to let folks know, um, next week is a, um, a Fed announcement week, uh, the Federal Open Market Committee is is meeting and releasing their notes. Um, I'm going to have Fed watcher Axel Merck uh, on this program uh, the day after uh, doing a live reaction to uh, Jerome Powell's press conference. Um, so if you want to get sort of a real-time debrief by a true Fed expert, um, stick stick around and, and keep your eyes peeled for that uh, that uh, video with Axel. Again, if you're a premium subscriber to my Substack, you'll be able to participate live 
in that discussion with Axel. We'll, you know, Ash, Axel will give us his thoughts and then we'll take live questions uh, from that premium audience. Um, so just one more reason to go to adamtaggart.substack.com and upgrade. Um, all right, uh, folks, we're here at the end of the uh, video and I got to rush off and grab a, uh, a flight to go uh, to go to Lance uh, Roberts's firm's uh, conference that he's having uh, this weekend in Houston. Um, before I do, though, I just want to say, look, if you've enjoyed this uh, presentation, this uh, interview here with Danielle and would like to see her come back on the program, um, please let me know and vo vote your support for that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Mike, thanks so much for joining me again for yet another week. I'll let you have the last word here. Well, thanks. So it's It's been a, a great interview, Adam. I don't really have much to say in closing other than uh, we're watching the market carefully. And if I had to guess, I'd say it goes a little higher for a little longer. But, uh, you know, beware. And we have protections on. And uh, again, happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk. Thanks again. Right. See you soon. Thanks, Mike. See you next week. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.